You are listening to Historically, a show where we decolonize history and debunk myths and misinformation taught to you in school and on corporate media. I'm your host, Esha. Today, we have Todd Miller, the author of Empire of Borders and now Build Bridges and Not Walls to talk to us about borders. Hello, Todd. How are you doing? Hey, good. How are you? Uh, excellent. How was your trip to Kenya? Uh, very good. Uh, I'm just I'm just getting back, so it's a little jet lag still. So hopefully I'm not slow to speak. But uh, yeah, it was a good it was a good trip. I was down on the Kenya Tanzanian border and the Masai Mara Serengeti area. Oh um, wow! Yeah. And what's going on there? Oh, there's a pretty serious. Uh, crisis i guess you could call it going on uh essentially uh you have a uh, tanzanian police who are attacking uh or trying to expel or evict a big swath of uh well maasai communities who are in the way of this uh company this it's a it's like a trophy hunting company oh my and uh yeah so there's a pretty brutal eviction happening and displacement and Lots of people coming across the border, or this happened earlier in the year. It's kind of calmed down right now, but I was looking into that a little bit. Okay, well, um, I was reading your book, and I guess I want to break this interview into two parts. One part is just talking about the book in general, and the other is just if we could have your indulgence, like answering questions or like doubts that people have, because this is a very big proposal if i may say so yeah yeah sure so your uh book um build bridges not walls is a very interesting book because for me the first thing that stood out is that you challenge the cliche that the immigration system is not broken but it's working as intended so can you tell me us a little bit about one or two examples, maybe the like the Gang of Eight reform bill or perhaps the DACA bill that was uh, in the news a few years ago? And how does that illustrate your idea that the immigration system is not exactly broken? Sure. Um, yeah. So the. Yeah, that's all that that cliche. It's it's said uh, every almost every day, right? You hear it somewhere. The immigration system's broken, or the border is broken, or the, you know the different the different ways that's expressed. And every time I hear that, my entire interior cringes <laughs> <laughs> because it's it's it it uh the whole idea of the immigration system being broken. Well, then it leads to certain debates. It, le- it leads to a way that, oh, this can be fixed. The It leads to, you know, this, the like, if you look at how the border is set up right now, like, the, let's just say the U.S.-Mexico border. The U.S.-Mexico border has been, I would call it, functioning machine to a certain degree now for decades and, and very intentionally constructed so that certain areas are fortified with 
lots of agents like armed border patrol agents and and the, their collaborations with the police of course um wall and those wall walls can be as tall as 30 feet or 20 feet or vehicle barriers and there's about 700 miles of those along the US Mexico border and technology and there's a whole Technology is the place where listeners, you're, uh, everyone should really pay attention to because that whole area of the border is just increasing and increasing and getting bigger and and um, more intense. And so you have this whole system that's being that's been built up over the last two to three decades with an intention and the strategy that's been used on the U.S.-Mexico border is called prevention through deterrence. And that deterrence strategy is purposely setting up the border so people cannot cross through traditional areas. By traditional areas, I would say that maybe before 30 years ago, and I'm talking around 1994 is when the prevention through deterrence strategy was implemented. Um, Before that, people would cross through cities, right? Like people would cross into San Diego or into Nogales or into El Paso or Brownsville, you know, and, and those, those sorts of places were, were blockaded. So people couldn't cross into these places. And then they were forced. The whole idea of prevention deterrence is that people would be forced around these er the cities and into deserts and into places where they might die. And if you go back to the border patrol memo in 1994, that announced the strategy, it said mortal danger was words that they used. So that not the pre-knowledge that people would die was a part of the system that's been built up and in place for decades now. And the whole idea, you know, that that people cross the border and and since the strategy was implemented, thousands of people have died crossing the U.S.-Mexico border that we know about. I think the tally of remains recovered has been about 8,000 people. And the number by estimates is three to 10 times more, according to um, some reports on the matter. And so I'm bringing up all this to show um, one aspect of the border and immigration system is one that causes or that has been developed to force people into areas where they might die. And that death is actually a part of the the border enforcement system. And it's not in, and that's the intention, right? It's not, I'm not saying that, oh, we're going to, you know, that the whole idea was like, we're going to kill people by the border. The whole intention though, was that this border would put people in places where they might die. And this is one of the things I think of when I hear like what's going on with the border, the border, there's something that's not going right. There's nothing, something that's not going right with the immigration system. It's not quote unquote working. And when you look at it and it's out in many of its elements or this particular one, you're seeing, oh, it it is designed to put people in vulnerable places and even cause death. Okay, so early on in the book, there's this one shocking statistic you mentioned. I'm going to read that out. In 2020, the combined budget of the superseding agencies, Customs and Border Protection, CPB, and Immigration and Customs Enforcement, ICE, exceeded $25 billion. That's a 6,000% increase. Wow, that is a lot of money 
being pumped into these agencies. And you also talk about how a lot of most of this money is going to private defense contractors like Northrop Grubman or private surveillance contractors like Elbit Systems. And they can kind of do a lot of this without much oversight. So I'm trying to understand who benefits is these contractors? Um, Is that what's key? Like, what role do they keep play in keeping this up? The contractors are they play um, an increasing role in the whole enforcement apparatus. And you mentioned in the first question, the Gang of Eight immigration reform bill that I think it was in 2013 that it was passed by the Senate. If you go to if if you go to that bill and you and you um, torture yourself by reading the thousand pages in that bill in that bill that was passed by the Senate and then it went to Congress and it was it was the House I should say and then it was shot down so it never passed. But if you look at that, you'll see there's pages dedicated to private companies. There's pages dedicated to. I, I believe, and I have to re- now remember, I'm sorry, I have to go into my memory banks here, but I believe I believe in that bill, there was something like $45 billion proposed in a comprehensive immigration reform bill to border enforcement. And then in that, there were companies that were mentioned, including, I believe, Lockheed Martin with Black Hawk Helicopters. I think Northrop Grumman was was mentioned in there. A number of different companies that had, and if you look at who was lobbying before that that bill was passed, well, all these companies were, right? They were behind closed doors. They were talking to the people that were writing the immigration reform bill. And, and they were making sure that they were getting money allotted to them, that they would get contracts out of the bill. And lo and behold, if that bill had passed, they would have got the contracts right so so you're so this i think this goes into the complete hypocrisy i guess is one way to put it of all of this stuff right you know you have a comprehensive immigration reform bill if you go the democrats in the united states are always calling for this right but yet when you have the paperwork for one of these reform bills there's tons of money given to more enforcement and the actual companies uh there are companies that are are involved in this too. So, and this just gives a glimpse into what I would say is a thriving, and I hate to put it that way, because now in 2023, the combined CBP and ICE budgets are $26 billion. So you can see how it keeps going up, um, even with the Biden, in the Biden administration, right? A thriving border industrial complex where you have companies who are jockeying for contracts. I believe there were 105,000 contracts given between 2008 and 2020 to private companies just by from CBP and ICE. And that was worth $55 billion, which is, and this will give you an idea of the scope of how much money is going into this and how much money is in the, the immigration and border enforcement budgets, it, it, the $55 billion just given to private companies over that 12-year span was more of the total immigration enforcement budgets from 1975 to 2003. And that's, what is that, 28 years? Wow. And that was $52 billion. So you can see how much is just being funneled 
into this. And it gets, there's more and more and more every year. In fact, this last year, 2022, I just did an article on this, was the most contracts and the most money ever given to private companies. Wow, that is a lot. And what kind of logistics services, devices do these private companies provide? Everything you can think of. <laughs> but but the main thing I can I I um I focus on is the technology stuff. I mean, you could there's there's of course construction companies that are building wall. You have the Biden administration, you know, despite the fact that they said we will not build one more foot of wall, right? When they mm-hmm. when they came into office, they have a construction company hired and they're building wall, right, in certain parts of the border. And the, the but what I like to focus on the most is the technology. On um, the technology, they're the most expensive contracts. Last year, um, 2022, there was um, there's some contracts that people should keep an eye on that around drones, um, unmanned aerial systems contracts. The CBP has given has a big one out to the company San Diego, California based company General Atomics for Predator B drones. And those are the drones that have been used around the world in U.S. military operations. They're on the, they've been on the border now for a good 20 years. What do they do on the border? So they apparently, they uh, do surveillance. They fly. They have the, they're equipped with these camera systems. They, up to this point, as far as we know, they're not weaponized, even though there's some leaked information from CBP a few years back, uh, how they, um, how it, like some leaked documents saying how much CBP wanted them to be weaponized with quote unquote non lethal weapons. So you can imagine, you know, a predator be shooting a rubber bullet from, 20,000 feet at somebody. But to this point, they're not weaponized. So they do surveillance and they do, I I think they're constantly flying over the borderlands um, and they have those pretty sophisticated camera systems and kind of like drones anywhere. You have a lot of the drones fly out of a military base uh, in Southern Arizona, for example, Fort Huachuca. So you have similar situations of people sitting in front of monitors, watching, you know, what the drones are seeing through their cameras. They're watching people cross through the desert, for example. And they, and then they reinforce all this other technology and all these other camera systems and surveillance towers and unmanned, um, what are they called again? They're, un, they're ground sensor systems. So if you're crossing the border, you're going to hit a lot of, like you'll probably step on these underground uh, sensors that will set off this alarm system and they'll send the dr- sometimes they'll send the drones to go look at where these where people are walked on the sensors it's a surveillance mission up to this point but now they're expanding the drones from these bigger predator bees which i bet your your listeners are very familiar with the predator bees to the smaller medium-sized drones i so one of the big things they did last year was they got a lot of contracts or they're, they're searching the one thing that um, is really curious is that they had a request for proposals for a small drone system that is equipped with facial recognition. Um, and if I remember correctly, the in the request for proposal, and this is DHS's Department of Homeland Security's request for proposal to companies in that RFP, 
Um, they had uh, they wanted the drone to be able to approach a person without the person being able to detect them. So very so silently. Mm-hmm. And then the drones able to take a picture, a picture of a person's face for their facial recognition system. So basically facial recognition, the biometric system that they'll put somebody's face into this huge, huge, ever growing database of people's faces attached to whatever information that Customs and Border Protection has about on these people. That's another growing, growing part of the apparatus. And so you can see how the drone systems and this biometric systems and the kind of tracking of people and the surveillance of people and the monitoring of people and all that all are coming together in kind of one package. Yeah, I have a hypothetical question. Suppose I live near the border somewhere in Mexico. I've never set foot inside of the U.S. I don't really want to, but I'm just like walking across some area. Will the U.S. surveil me, have my picture in in a database, et cetera, even though I've never, ever set foot in the U.S.? Good question. (laughs) (laughs) So... So um, if you go to the border, the U.S.-Mexico border, and you live in Mexico, and there's plenty of people that live right on the border, in fact, right on the other side of the wall, who have never crossed into the United States, yet they have these cameras. And if you go to the border, you can see that even on the border wall, in, in most in all cities, there's a border wall of some sort, there's ca- mount cameras mounted on top of the border wall with capacity to take video of you take your picture, perhaps your face, perhaps get a facial recognition um, imprint on you. Um, that that said, the capability is there is what I'm trying to say. I wouldn't doubt if it was done. I, I know that like they were doing pilot stuff on facial recognition in Southern Arizona, where I live, mm-hmm. and um, without anyone knowing about it. So you could be just driving around wherever, Tucson, you know, are 30, 40, 50 miles away from the border. And um, they, like, I think they had it set up at a checkpoint, one of the Border Patrol checkpoints, which are really inland. Like, you know, they're not at the border itself. And they have, and I suspect one of the places where they did this pilot was at the Border Patrol checkpoint. I suspect that the roving patrol vehicles could do it as well. And there weren't more details that it, about it than that it actually happened. But, you know, we know it happened. They took thousands of people's pictures without their consent. Um, so the possibility of what your, your hypothetical situation is pretty high. And the, the, the way that the databases are growing exponentially makes me think that it's very possible. And one other thing to mention is CBP drones have gone across the border which is a whole issue that hasn't been discussed that much. But, and I think it was in agreement with the Mexican government. So you can see the kind of collaborations that happen between the two places. And I would suspect that that sort of surveillance has happened. So in your book, you mentioned that since 2003, at least 97 people have been shot or killed by border patrol agents. But then you mention one case where they, sh- or wh- a few cases, I guess, maybe, mm, where uh, they literally shot into Mexico and killed somebody. Right. Mm-hmm. C- can you talk a little bit about that? And what happened after that? 
Yeah, so there has been a few cases. Um, one case that's been huge about around where I live um, is it happened in Nogales, in Nogales, Arizona, Sonora. Well, the case itself was there's a 16-year-old boy uh, named Jose Antonio Elena Rodriguez, and he was heading towards his uh, to visit his brother, who was working a late night shift at a convenience store on the Mexican side. And he and he was walking right by the border wall. So as he was walking, some sort of incident happened. Um, the Border Patrol claimed that people were throwing rocks. And if you if you if you go if you were to go there and see that claim, you would see that where Jose Antonio was walking, there was a big embankment, probably about 30 feet high. Um, and then the wall itself, which is about 30, 20 feet high. So for for people to have a, to be able to throw rocks, even if that was a, a, a pretext for them to shoot live ammunition at somebody is a difficult one to swallow. So what happened was there was this whole incident and then Border Patrol, one agent ended up shooting. So if the, the wall itself is not a solid wall. It's called a bollard wall. So there's like a, what like bars. It's like bars of a jail, right? And the the agent put his the barrel of the gun between uh. the bars and just shot right into Mexico, um, hitting uh, Jose Antonio, I think, more than 10 times. In the back. Yikes. And he's in his own homeland in Mexico. He's in Mexico. Yep. He's walking on the sidewalk on the Mexican side and he falls and he dies, of course. Um, wow. And uh, yeah. And so basically what's happened after this is what always happens. Nothing. I mean, this one went to court and uh, it took years and years and years. And the family has been very vocal about it, especially his grandmother. If if anyone has a chance, go on to YouTube or something and look up uh, Jose Antonio Elena Rodriguez's and Nogales' grand, grandmother. Her name is Doña Taide. We'll put a link here. <laughs> yeah, put a link. She is, but uh, she's been the most one of the most vocal people about it. Very touching stuff that she she says. But anyhow, what happens at the, at the end of this long story is nothing, right? And that it goes, it goes to court and it gets thrown out and the agent is let off. And the I, I'm a personal, like a lot of people were talking about the agent, the agent, Lonnie, Lonnie Schwartz is the name of the agent. And I, I was personally uncomfortable about how it got individualized. Right. Because I see the agent as right as a part of this bigger apparatus. In my opinion, the apparatus itself should have been on trial, the border patrol itself should have been on trial for murder. And when you ha- look at it that way, then you have, you know, all the other cases of border patrol shootings and killing of people and including the times that they shot, they shot into Mexico, as well as the, the prevention through deterrence strategy, which has caused death in other ways. So, but basically the nothing that's happened and the nothing that's happened in the other 97 cases it leads one to believe, and there's lots of good analysis out there that there's impunity, that a, a, a very big sense of uh, shield of impunity for the U.S. Border Patrol, and that leads the Border Patrol to um, believe that they can do whatever they want, whenever they want. And mind you, this one, this incident happened under the light, bright lights, under their own camera systems 
that had footage of the agent shooting in New Mexico and killing Jose Antonio. Camera footage that disappeared. It, it, it disappeared all of a sudden. And the agents still didn't get charged, let alone to think of all the incidents that happen way out in the desert where there's nobody watching or no, where nobody sees what's happening. And uh, it just kind of points to that the border apparatus and it's vi- it's inherent violence and, and, and the impunity and the violence and how they go hand in hand. Indeed, um, it is very shocking. And I guess it a little bit reminds me of how the U.S., when it places military bases, actually, first of all, does not subscribe to any treaties like the in The Hague where they can't be tried for war crimes. And on top of it, a lot of the military personnel are exempt from local laws. So it's kind of like a form of colonialism, which was exactly what happened when Brit- Britain came to India or whatever, where British people weren't subject to local laws. So one thing that you make very clear, clear is that you use the Guatemala United Fruit Company example to show that there are no borders for corporations. Can you expound a little bit on that? Yeah, that's that's always the one of the things that um, I think about, you know, especially, you know, you get you have the the very reductive conversations around open borders right um in the united in the united states and whenever that con- that conversation of course is a lightning rod at this point and it gets really polemic and um <laughs> at least in the, in the main in the mainstream i'm i'm talking more than anything else it, I, I feel like w- w- once people hear open borders they let their imagination run wild and it's not fact-based anymore <laughs> yes <laughs> yeah minds seem to melt down brains seem to melt down quite quickly yes and the and the imaginations run wild and one place the imaginations don't tend to run that wild on are the fact that um there are, already is an open borders um system uh for certain people and that and you could say you know by the accident of where you were born right could lead you like the, if you're born if you have a u.s passport well that opens doors in a lot of places that if you're born in another place would not but also and i think this is the point that even the bigger point and the point that goes precisely to your question that corporate power has an open border so if you look at like the north american free trade agreement is one example, right? NAFTA. NAFTA is an open border system, right? And, and you'll go back to what, 1992 and 90, whenever it was, um, the, the countries agreed upon it and who who actually made NAFTA? Well, 500 Fortune 500, the Fortune 500 corporations, you know, were were pretty much the ones at the meeting about NAFTA. Not, there was no like civil society, right? From Mexico, Canada, or the, or the US really. And what they wanted was open borders for their companies to go to be able to like work in different, you know, different places. And of course, open border systems for companies were predated NAFTA, right? The example of the United, United Fruit Company that you brought up from Guatemala. Of course, if you, and people, I'm sure I don't want to repeat um, Guatemalan history. Yeah. Um, so Guatemalan history, of course, uh, uh, one uh, one huge moment in Guatemalan history was the 1954 coup, uh, CIA uh, instigated coup 
in Guatemala that happened at the behest of the United Fruit Company because uh, at that time, Guatemala had 10 years of its first quote-unquote democracy, right? Like where where they actually had an election of a president. And um, at the time, the the president was Jacobo Arbenz. And so what he was doing was was a number of reforms. And one of the reforms that he had proposed was that there would be some land reform for for landless people in Guatemala. Uh-huh. Um, and one of the things that they were going to do was take a, a portion of the follow land used by United Fruit Company, the Boston, Massachusetts based United Fruit Company, U.S. company and redistribute it to people. So that was that was the reform. Right? It wasn't even take over United Fruit. It wasn't kick out United Fruit from Guatemala. It was a it was kind of a small thing, actually, comparatively speaking. And uh, what happened was United Fruit, then there's a whole there's a uh, there's a great book written about it called Bitter Fruit. I think that's the name of the title, the book. The So basically, United Fruit was behind CIA, got the CIA involved, and then they executed a military coup, ousted uh, Jacobo Arbenz. Um, so here, here we have an open border system where a foreign company was not being deported, right? If we're going to use that language, and uh, just reformed, and then here they are able to do some of the most massive political changes in a country that you could possibly do, because what followed was a military dictatorship and a brutal one, right? A thirty-six year military dictatorship, and followed by like at the end there was like. Brutal genocide. Um, you mentioned this in your uh, old book, not not your former book, no, Empire of Borders, the El Mozote massacre, where they just killed everyone in the village except for four people. Right. No, no, sorry, not El Dos Eres. Yeah, Dos Eres. Yep. Sorry, El Mozote yeah. is another massacre that happened in El Salvador. I'm sorry, I got my massacres confused. But it's this, it's similar, right? It's the yeah. same. It's not the same, but it is. It's if you look at the El Masote massacre, it's U.S. That it was a recently trained U.S. battalion that went in there, and the same things are happening in El Salvador, where El Salvador was saying, you know, we're challenging whatever this system is, capitalistic system, and that was not okay with the United States, right? And boom, here comes the military end with the iron fist. And so you have like not only semblance of if to go back to the original question, you know, an open border system for corporations, but like the heavy hand of brutality or violence that's going to ensure that these these corporations are going to get what they want. Would you like to ensure you get what you want? Help support your favorite history podcast and give us some cold, hard cash. So, go to historically.substack.com and subscribe today. Also, check us out on YouTube and Twitch for Lit with Lennon on Mondays at 12 p.m. Eastern. Tune in on Sundays at 12.30 p.m. Eastern to our call-in show, 100-Year-Old Bonesaw. It is what is to be done. Not too far later in your book, you mentioned that the first border... I guess that came was called the Gadsden Purchase, which wasn't really a purchase, but basically like a conquering at gunpoint. Yeah. 
So there, so in the, with the U.S. Mexico border, it was a there was a treaty. There's a Mexican American War, the so-called Mexican American War, which sounds like it's equal. Right? <laughs> <laughs> I was I always hesitate to say it that way, but uh, and that in that war, the Treaty of Guadalupe again, the word treaty it makes it just sound so innocuous mm-hmm. of Guadalupe Hidalgo, which then the United States took almost fifty percent of Mexican land. Wow, with, that's with, a lot. That. So yeah. And does that also mean that families could have been like cut in half as in like your uncle's in one side and you're on the other and you can't see him? Uh, Yes. I mean, as a lot of people say in Tucson who have been here forever, right, that the border and, you know, we didn't cross the border, the border crossed us. And you could people say that across anywhere on the border on the border for that reason, right? Because the border all of a sudden went from wherever. If you, I'd encourage people to look at the map of where the border used to be. There's this really funny Smirnov vodka ad that was in a magazine that, for some reason, had the pre-Treaty of Guadalupe Hidalgo border, and it goes all the way up to Oregon. It goes through Oklahoma, right? The border goes, I mean, the, the oh, I think, I think uh, one person used the border was like oh, when Trump wanted to build the wall. It's like, okay, let's, let's use the old border. And wow. it, it really, you could see, but anyhow, the visual shows you how much of Mexican territory was vanquished with the Treaty of Guadalupe Hidalgo. And then the Gadsden Purchase was the last bit of that, which was Southern Arizona. And basically taking Southern Arizona, which is Tona Autumn, you know, the indigenous, it, all this is indigenous land first and foremost, right? Um, so it's like just chopping up where indigenous people live and then drawing borders between where people, where there aren't natural borders. And that's exactly what happened on the on the U.S.-Mexico border, like the Tona Autumn, who, whose territory went all the way to Hermosillo. Hermosillo is about 200 miles south of the border in Mexico and all the way to the north of Phoenix, which is another hundred or so miles. And you can see like, oh, the border was not drawn with with any thought of, or no nor consultation of people who actually live there. In this case, the Tonautum is just bisected their land. But at first it was just a line in the sand, right? There mm-hmm. wasn't an enforcement apparatus. It was very porous and people just ignored it. Mm-hmm. It was later, you know, that you could see that now, right? He went from this line in the sand to this massive multi-billion dollar apparatus does what it does now. And um, it kind of reminds you kind of mentioned this. It reminds me of like the situation right after World War One. I. I guess the Treaty of Versailles is one of them and the Six Pico Agreement Treaty of Triton, where the West just drew borders like in Versailles. They just kind of drew random borders in Eastern Europe. And in Six Pico, they also not right. I don't know. Like it was between Britain, France, and U.S. where they were decided to draw borders in all of Middle East. So of course, none of it has the consultation of the local people. So again, it's another form of colonialism, but this time interior colonialism inside a nation, I guess. Yes, absolutely. I remember talking to a man in Ramtha in Jordan, right right by the Syrian border. And they had, and it was in like 2017, I think. And they had closed that border for like one or two years at that point. And I asked him what he thought about it. And um, this, I, I say it's anecdotal, but it, this expresses so many people that locally live along borders anywhere is like, and I was like, are you 
you know, what do you think about that? And, he's, and he just looked at me and, and like, I, he was astonished. I even asked the question and, and then he said, I hate it. You know, I hate the fact. And then he said, my grandmother lives over in, in the other side of the bar. I can't even see my grandmother. Right. So that, I mean, to me, that, 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 that moment kind of expresses, you know, how borders have been drawn, like you were just saying. And it seems like it's a very brutal uh, and it's very violent against one side. One thing you mentioned is, uh, well, we already mentioned how it's like just ballooning the budget. I, I guess early, uh, some t- a few years ago, I looked at this map of like w- what is considered the border. And it's well into the interior of the U.S. Can you talk a little bit about that? Right. You mean like the border, you mean the border zone or what it, what constitutes? Yes, exactly. Sure. Yeah. Um, I think the map you're referring to is, well, the, uh, at the hundred mile zone. Yes. Um, that's it. yeah. The ACLU called it the constitution free zone. They don't want to call it that anymore. I should say, cause they call they, they don't want to call it that because they that implies that you can't use the constitution in the zone. But uh but but their point of it, right? The constitution free zone is still there, right? That so the hundred mile zone. So imagine the contours of the United States and imagine a band around those contours. And I'm talking the two thousand mile US Mexico border and a thick band that's a hundred miles long. Um, and then up the coast. So the coasts are not exempt, the coasts are a part of the border. And then along the 4,000, 5,000 mile U.S. Canada border, and then down the coast, which then, if you think about it, would include the entire state of Florida. The entire state of Florida is a border zone. And this, and so if you think about this, you can see what is considered a border zone. The Constitution will say mangled zone, right? And the reason why it's called that is because Border Patrol can operate in these areas, they can set up checkpoints, for example, immigration checkpoints. And the reason why it's been called a constitutional mangled zone is because the Fourth Amendment, your Fourth Amendment rights in the United States not to be searched nor seized are gone. They're no longer there, right? The agent can, and you can be, you could be driving your car or whatever in the zone and an agent might see you and pull you over and just have to have reasonable suspicion and then can search you or search your vehicle. Or you could be going through a checkpoint, the same thing, the kind of reasonable or um, just like some sort of suspicion based on the agent's own criteria to put you into secondary inspection. This includes racial profiling, the whole thing about EHS always making the case that they need to use a person's skin complexion um, as they consider when they are, when, if they are going to interrogate people further or not, has um, been a thing that they've argued. So DHS has actually argued that they should be able to use um, racial profiling, and they do. And so within the 100-mile zone, this, these are the things. So you have the kind of exemptions of the Constitution, at least the semblance therein. I think the ACLU now pushes back upon themselves of saying it's a constitution-free zone because they want to say that you can push back against this. And perhaps you can. And I'd love to see it happen. And I'd love to see some court cases. But but it, up to this point, like CVP pretty much can 
roam free and almost do whatever it wants in these areas. And one more little small point I want to make on this one is that I I think people might remember Portland, what happened in Portland in 2020 with uh, when the Black Lives Matter protests were happening. Can you refresh our memory? (laughs) I at least forgot. Yeah, uh, so it's right after George Floyd, the George Floyd killing. And um, it's the summer of 2020. And there's a lot of protests going on around the around the country. And there's a bunch of protests in Portland. There was like hundreds of days in a row of protests in Portland, Oregon. And one of those nights, uh, or probably a number of those nights, but one of those nights, an unmarked vehicle came up to a group of protesters and they snatched a couple of them off the streets and put them in this in this vehicle and then took them off to be interrogated. Turns out they're a part of border. They were border patrol. Oh my God. Yeah. Um, Bortac. They're from Bortac and B-O-R-T-A-C Bortac. And that's a special forces unit of border patrol. Oh, I've seen some of Bortac's videos. They are, they look like they're uh, like, they look like some sort of, um, horrific video game action movie very violent it, it, yeah yes yeah they're 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 also they're like they're, they could be the robocop element of the border patrol yeah exactly um they're also Asha, they're the ones that go and do international trainings so they go all over the world and uh i remember i was in guatemala um going to one of their military bases where they were had a us had training of guatemalan border forces and i was at the gates and the soldiers there asked me if i was a part of after they were it was a whole long story i won't get into it but they wanted to know if i was a part of bortac we actually covered that like last time with your interview uh, that was the excerpt oh. we used from your book so we'll put a link to that <laughs> oh yeah 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 okay so yeah so that's board. So that Bortac, they do the international missions where they're like the SWAT team, special forces. Anyhow, they're in Portland, you know, statching people off the streets. Um, and that's a hundred mile zone. So that's 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 another thing for people to keep in, in mind, right? That the hundred mile zone means a number of things. It means things that we see in Southern Arizona, but it also means things in Portland or any other of these places along what's considered this hundred mile zone where this federal law enforcement agency with special extra constitutional powers can then function and effectively work. Uh, Yeah. Uh, And this is actually a good segue to the next part where you mentioned that the border patrol training, the whole culture, the way they do it produces a culture of cruelty. And you also mentioned that it is a frontline instrument of white supremacist power. So one example where a border patrol agent referred to migrants as disgusting subhuman unworthy of being kindling for a fire. So how does this kind of training add to all the cruel? Like, what are some of the manifestations? One or two examples of extreme like cruelty at the border. And is this part of the deterrence factor, as we mentioned earlier? I would say so, yeah. So the training, I don't know if you can find it. I I think if you went and looked for recruiting videos or training videos by the Border Patrol, you could find them on the internet. And they kind of say it all as well without being as explicit as, you know, the quote you just 
read, which unfortunately comes, I've heard, you know, that sort of talk coming from other Border Patrol agents as well. But there's a, you know, there's a training like um, that if or or you might be able to find recruiting stuff easier, but you get the same like without the explicit language, like where you're on the front lines of of the United States, you're defending the United States, you're defending it against. So the whole implication that there's enemies, you know, crossing the border, that it's a military operation. The whole militarization of the border is very true in many degrees. To me, I guess the most thing is like, how can there be like the United States is such a strong, like very little can be an enemy to the existence of the United States itself. So um, it's and for the most part, people like no, no matter one, two, even a million people just coming across cannot destabilize the United States as a country. <laughs> yeah, I think it's it's definitely in the realm of, of it, there needs to be the creation of an, an enemy. Mm-hmm. There needs to be the the facade this this idea that there is an enemy, even when there's not a, there's not an enemy, right? Um, so you and you see that with the border, the whole idea of the border, the the border wall itself. I, um, if if you're on one side of the border wall, you know, I think that there's a study, there's a study, and I can't remember where the study is, but with kids, you see the border wall, and then automatically think that on the other side of the wall, there's somebody that's an enemy that's out to get them, that's going to come and get something from them, that's going to take something from them. In the in the working class sense, and this is where you get like so much anti-immigrant rhetoric, where, um, you know, this whole idea that people are going to come take your job or take this or become criminals and in the country, you know, so this is how that quote unquote enemy takes these manifestations. And then the border patrol is then, you know, trained to defend this wall at all costs. And mind you, you know, a lot of the border patrol are in, are recruited right out of combat. Um, I think 30%. Oh, they are usually military people, former military people. 30%. 30%. Wow. Yeah. And uh, during their recruiting, different times they're recruiting people, they would go to military bases and, and recruit and say, hey, you know, you want the perfect job when you get back from the war, you know, you, you come to the Border Patrol. So you have a lot of military people and you can sense it. I mean, I remember there was one time I was trying to talk with an agent who pulled me and a, a caravan of cars over. And he literally, I mean, I, I knew he was ex-military. He had his 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 hand on his gun the whole time. Oh, my. And you could see his finger. Yeah, his finger was on the trigger, but it was in its holster. And I'm like, what are you doing? You're, you're Get your hand off your gun. We're just standing, you know, there's a, you could sense this like escalating tension. And in this case, it was like, we're a bunch of journalists, you know, going to do an interview at the border wall. But, uh, but this, but this whole, I, this, this, and the military training that's used, it's, it, it was 69 days of training. It where agents will go and learn all these different things, but they get the, crap beat beaten out of them during the training wait wait the agents themselves that's on uh, get beaten yeah why yeah i guess to there's this one thing it's called the red i think it's they have a weird name for it i'm sorry it's like the red man something uh-huh. sorry for the name that's the name of it and um 
So the so the the supervising agents, the trainers, dress up in these big red outfits, and then they send the trainees in there, and they have to like try to beat up the supervisors who are in these. No, wait a second. No, no, no. The supervisors are out. The trainees are in these red outfits, but the supervisors beat the crap out of them. So the red outfits are padded, but they still get the crap beaten out of them. And what they have to do is try to survive, like, whatever, the two minutes of getting punched and kicked and thrown to the ground and all that stuff without passing out or getting knocked out. There's another example, too, where they have to do jumping jacks. And um, a supervisor takes law enforcement grade pepper spray and sprays them in the eye, in their eyes. And then comes at them and starts trying to punch them. Yeah, so there's that sort of stuff. But we're, we're, you were going to say something. Well, okay, so in order for it to be training, it has to simulate some kind of real life experience that they would have in the future. And I just cannot see a place where they would, I don't know, do jumping jacks and have to deal with pepper spray. So it just seems like it's a scaremongering tactic more than anything. Yes, <laughs> you know, the, the the phantom enemy yet again uh, strikes again, right? And uh, it does seem like that. It does seem like, and and it doesn't even seem like that, having covered the border for so many years. Um, it is fear monitoring, yeah. That is very frightening to, like, and of course, people who go through that will be very fright, will be automatically frightened because if that's what they imagine whoever's coming from that other side of the border to be like, it's already going to set up a hostile situation as opposed to a de-escalatory situation. Exactly. You're getting pounded. Exactly. It's not a de-escalatory situation at all. You're getting pounded in your head that somebody's coming that's out to get you. And mind you, if you interview agents, you're going to have uneven, like the way, but, it, but, but uneven, Way I've talked to agents who dissent, right? They hate the border patrol, yet they're getting the salary and they want to get the pension and whatnot. So they stay in it. But the whole idea that they're taught anything that during their training, besides the fact that you're that, you know, the pounding in um, this idea that there's some sort of person coming across the border that's going to out to get you, possibly wanting to beat the crap out of you or kill you is is definitely something emphasized in training. And um yeah that that is pretty shocking. Um so then what is your proposal to have a world without borders? Well, I mean it's I think one thing to even start this conversation we have to unpack what it what we mean by borders, right? Yes. What we mean by political borders, how these you know how these borders were formed what sort of enforcement are on the borders, who has borders, who doesn't have borders. Like, we, I don't like this conversation is so often had without bringing in the corporate elements, mm-hmm. you know, the fact that what we were discussing earlier, all that, or the, like we were discussing with the U S military, why does the U S military have no borders mm-hmm. and they can go and put up military bases wherever they want. Or just drone any, a lot of places that they think they can get away with droning. Exactly. Yeah. While, you know, somebody in Mexico who's been displaced by a mining company that comes from the United States, we'll say, for our example, um, has to face a, a huge border. And that's who we're ta- that's who we're always talking about. 
So like trying to understand like there's there is an open border system for some and a closed border for system for others. Understand what the border systems are, how extensive it is, understand all the how it's grown, understand all the privatization part of it, how, as we were discussing, understanding who benefits from it, who doesn't. I think like I'm not one to say that I know you know, exactly what to do. <laughs> I don't want to be, you know, have that no. conceit to say that, right? But what I do think is these conversations that we have about the border are awful. They're just so, they're so superficial. And so they just like go to the most superficial thing. And I think, Asha, you mentioned this at the beginning, your imaginations run wild on mythical, you know, these things that don't even exist, the phantoms, right? Yeah. Yeah. So the grounds of uh, in which we have these sorts of conversations are so deformed, right? They're so inadequate that my first uh, proposal would be, let's let's actually, you know, bring people together and talk about what this actually is. And I don't mean the same old people. I don't mean the quote unquote gang of eight in the, you know, the the bipartisan. (laughs) Definitely not them. Yeah, definitely not them. I mean, like a global, like people coming together from everywhere, like, um, and talking about what this means and, and what this thing is. And, uh, and I honestly think if you start from some sort of other platform, um, we'd have a lot of different, a different world. So can I just back up right now to give the scope of it? We have a world in, in a global sense, right? Of more than, I think it's 77 border walls around the world, up from 15 uh, in, in at 1989 when the Berlin Wall fell. Those walls have been built in an accelerated fashion since 9-11. Um, we, and, and, and not only walls, right? Walls are just one element. We have board systems and billions and countless billions of dollars that are being spent on these, on what I would call the global border system. And tens of thousands, I would even say hundreds of thousands of border patrol agents that are being put on, you know, that are tasked with enforcing borders and what I mean by that, too, is like mainly coming from the epicenter of borders, like places like the U.S., places like the European Union, places like Australia, but then being you know, dep- the other countries being deputized, like from Empire of Borders, right, mm-hmm. um, to play the role of immigration agent. Like when the United States started sending Mexico all these resources they have been for years, but it's like particularly upping the game in 2010 and beyond. I wrote an article called Mexico or the U.S.'s newest border patrol agent and which was whole Mexico. Right. So Mexico is basically becoming a deputized version that of the U.S. border, but extended a thousand miles to the south. And then it keeps going on and on and on and on. Right. And so you have this like huge web of a border enforcement apparatus that permeates the globe. It's expanding outward. As we were just discussing, it goes inward as well. Like you don't have to go to the United States to go to the 100 mile zone, right? If I travel again in Southern Mexico, if I travel in Southern Mexico from the Guatemalan border, 100 miles into Chiapas, 
I'm going to go through probably 15 immigration checkpoints. Wow. To give you an example of like how that's not just a phenomenon in the U.S., right? It's this internalization of immigration apparatus is, is everywhere. And pe- these if you are if you don't have the papers, these agents will pull you off the bus, right? They'll pull you off and you're disappeared. I've seen people pulled off buses and then the bus leaves and then the dark night again, right? And you're like, what? is going to happen to that person. And so this is like, to under to, uh, my point is, it's just like, let's understand what this thing is before we get into the whole thing of this or that, like open borders or closed borders or a world without borders. Like there, you should say there's a difference between borders and no borders, which I could talk to you. I could talk about a little bit too, if you want. Please do. Yeah, so there, so the, so no board, so border, so open borders is, of course, like U.S. would keep its border with Mexico as an example, but then people would be free to cross the border. So the border apparatus, the wall would go away, the technology, the border patrol, people would, would be free to cross. There would be an open border system, but the border and the nation states of the United States and Mexico still exist. Uh, No borders is the nation state ceases to exist, right? So one example, so I was just, I was just, I'm barely, you probably can hear the jet lag in my voice, right? I was just in, in Kenya on the Tanzanian border. And, uh, and that border has nothing on it. There's no wall. There's no surveillance. There's no there. I think there is more surveillance. I should not say that there is now a little bit of a border patrol. I shouldn't even say, but, but you go to the border and you you have to find these markers or beacons go, Oh, there's a border. It's not like other borders. Like, Oh, there's a border. There's a gigantic wall that you just, you can walk from the Masai Mara to the Serengeti without even knowing it. Right. Um, But you know, the, if you talk to the Maasai, and I was with the Maasai, they, people like one person called it a tool of oppression. And another person called it um, a, an egregious human rights violation that this borderline exists at all. And this goes back to our other thing that we're talking about, because the boundary, which the international boundary between Tanzania and, and Kenya was not drawn by any African, any Kenyan or Tanzanian or Maasai person. It was drawn in Europe by, in the Berlin Conference of 1884 by European powers as the European countries divvied out who got what in Africa. So England gets Kenya, Germany gets Tanzania, and all of a sudden the border line, which as they pointed out to me just in the, a couple of days ago, is a straight line. What border is actually straight? Well, colonial borders are. is a straight line and it literally divides people and their capacity to be together and their capacity to organize together like the Maasai in half, right? So it, it divides people um, and divides a, a potentially big political force. And so that's the whole idea of no borders, right? The no borders is the nation states cease to exist. And then a sort of probably, and I should say, it doesn't mean there's no borders at all, right? It just means that the nation state system, how the nation state borders pretty much like as people told me in Kenya the whole time, neo-colonial, they called it the neo-colonial boundary. That's what they called it in Kenya. They didn't call it the border. They called it the neo-colonial boundary. And so that goes away and a whole other sort of whatever, more organic, I guess, system of 
borders. I, I hate the word so loaded that I hate to say the word, but but the word of like between, you know, a whole, a, a, a whole, I'm not saying that there's not going to be borders here and there. What, I, what I'm saying is the whole kind of neocolonial border system would go away. Okay, so you, you're maybe saying that you want to democratize the borders more um, instead of having some guy from the East India Company draw the borders from a thousand years ago. Oh, not really, that's, sorry, a hundred years ago. It is somebody, uh, it is what the people decide as to where, which law, which government, which law applies. Yeah, I guess. I guess that would, would be determined, right? Yeah. One of my concerns is, of course, that I agree with a lot of your proposals. One of my concerns is, of course, the fact that corporations are going to be using this idea to basically push neoliberalism into other countries. Like, for example, um, Monsanto has these pretty strange seed patents and Often they try to get other countries to respect these seed patents, which means farmers can't grow what they need to grow because they have to pay royalties to Monsanto. Like, how, how would you address critics who are worried about this issue? Yeah, that's. Um, I mean, that's 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 a great question, and I think it goes into well, some pretty significant things. Uh, one one thing, of course, is of course neoliberalism and. And the way that globalization works and, 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 you know, free market, free trade agreements and all that sort of stuff, that is like a whole opening of borders. So there's that the whole open border system of neoliberalism, having open borders of corporations being able to move into other places already exists. It's already happening. It's happening worldwide. So I wonder, and this is why I say, I mean, I'm not saying I have the answers. I'm What I'm saying is that the way that it's set up, you know, with the nation state borders, and this is apart from, let's go to what you're saying, Asha, like the democratization of the border, where you have, let's think about Kenya and Tanzania, for example. So the Maasai people would have a sort of area that was the Maasai area, we'll say. And then maybe they could determine in that area, and then as other peoples in other areas, that there would be, you know, a more emphasis put on what the Maasai do, rather than Monsanto being able to come, you know, what what sort of laws would perhaps there would be an inverse of what's happening right now, where you have a move away from these kind of rampant forces of globalization, where corporate powers everywhere and going wherever they want and doing wherever they want, and kind of stopping that from happening, while local people and are able to take away the boundaries that are confining them, but able to really determine their own laws rather than like some nation state like Kenya, for example, or the United States or Mexico or so many governments, Guatemala, right? With the United Fruit Company or, you know, any different place that so many governments are so in cahoots with the corporations that they'll allow the corporations to come in. So what, you know, perhaps one of the changes would be that, there would actually be walls put up to the corporations while more free movement to people, a kind of opposite effect to what we have. That would be a great idea. I mean, that would be the ultimate goal. Um, one last thing I, it's a, I just want to quick mention, like what is the impact of these border apparatuses on the environment since more and more people are concerned about global climate change these days? 
Oh, there's huge. And and in fact, I would encourage uh, people to look at, and I, I imagine your listeners have already done a lot of this stuff, but um, like, look at the Pentagon and how much they write about the climate change. And then um, what I actually wrote a book on this uh, called Storming the Wall um, that looks at climate change and borders. And in that book, I, I I really dug into I dug into some of the Pentagon stuff, but I also looked at uh, looked at um, DHS Department of Homeland Security and how much they're looking at climate change and how much they're anticipating you know the the displacement of people around the world and increasing displacement of people around the world and how it's going to get more how more and more people are going to be on the move and um, how you know, the solution, quote unquote, solution to this is building more borders. And that's precise. If you go to the DHS climate adaptation, or I think it's called the climate action plan. One of the things they they say is that we might have to build our borders more because of possible mass migrations. And in that in that action plan, they discuss in it very the very things that you see happening in Central America, like People having displaced because of drought, for example, in certain areas where and crops wilting and then people, you know, in food crises or, you know, heavy rain coming from the coasts and the hurricanes. And to be able to predict that. But then the, the solution is, oh, mass migrations mean more border and more border enforcement. And so you see you see those sort of correlations of a more bordered world. You have a. It's interesting because I, I believe this is on, we're on a collision course here of a world of more and more people displaced if if predictions hold. And I, the predictions for 2050 run between, I think it's like 125 million to 1.2 billion, depending wow. on our source. That's yeah. huge. That's a lot of, that's like almost the size of India now. Right. So yeah, imagine the size of India population you know, be on the move in 2050. And so you have that and then colliding. And then we were discussing the U.S. budgets. But imagine those budgets for border enforcement proportional around the world, because all everywhere those those budgets are going on to astronomical levels. So you have all these people on the move versus all these boundaries and borders. And that is a collision course that is happening already. And that is just waiting to happen in the future. In fact, we, if if things dynamics continue the way they are, that's it's very easy to predict. That's what we have coming at us. And so, one last thing about it is that one thing to think about with climate and with the, in, in, as we think about the freedom of movement, the freedom of mobility of people. It's going to be essential at one point that people are going to need to move from one place to another. And this means like places that people just cannot return to. When you look at like sea level rise and how many people are going to be displaced. Like and just, Bangladesh, where it, a lot might just be underwater. Right. And yeah, oh, I, for, I forget. I saw a general and it was the U.S. general who... Uh, had uh, all these ties with Bangladeshi generals who said that they were predicting like 30 or 40 million or some preposterous number from just Bangladesh that would be on the move. And mind you, India has built this 
gigantic border. There's a border wall on the Indian-Bangladeshi border and the BSF, which is, I think that's the Indian Border Patrol, the Border Security Forces, they're stationed. That's the deadliest border in terms of uh, um, people being shot and killed as well. Oh, Lord. And so you have that. I mean, that's a really a good example of what's to come, right? You have Bangladeshis that are going to be displaced under their places underwater. And then you have a border. Then if you go anywhere out of there, you're going to run up against a border system. And uh, yeah, so that's something to imagine, you know, as, as we go for, as we go in, you know, go into the future and something, honestly, you know, that, you know, I guess that's one of the reasons I, I wanted to sit down and write this book to begin with, you know, to think of, aren't there other ways that, you know, even considering these major events that we can really, you know, logically predict are going to happen, that it's time to really kind of contemplate things in a different way. And then how can we do that? That makes perfect sense. Um, what are you working on next? Oh, so, well, speaking of that, um, well, uh, there's two things. I, am working on one i write a weekly column for what's called the border chronicle and so i'm along with journalist melissa doboski and we write yeah we write twice a week on border issues primarily the u.s mexico border but i'm expand we're expanding to cover other borders like i'm currently writing a three-part series on the kenyan tanzania border looking at a lot of the u.s externalization of its borders there as well and I'm at, I work on another book project. Speaking of climate change, it's looking at the border, the U.S. border, water, how Mexico ships water to the United States, and how people don't have enough water to irrigate. Small farmers don't have enough water to irrigate their crops. And I'm going into the kind of the heart of this issue, um, and am going. I'm currently just starting the research of writing a book on this issue. That's really cool. Um, so uh, people can find you at Still Mimo Miller. Oh yeah, yeah, that's my uh, Twitter handle, and that's at m e m o m i l l e r. And uh, t- uh, my website is Todd Mil- Miller Writer. I think it is. Sorry, I don't. Even <laughs> I will put way. a link Oops. to it. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. Good, good, good. Yeah. Thank you so much. Um, like I said, when I first heard about this book, I've mentioned this, I was a little skeptical because I was worried. Like, I, there was a lot of things I was worried about. A little bit of it was fear mongering, of course, that I had bought into. But now, after I reading it, it seems like it's a very, it's definitely a place that we as a humanity should be moving towards, in my opinion. Cool. Yeah, thanks. Yeah, it's uh, it's amazing, like, how... I don't know why I stepped into this landmine, <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. where you talking about open borders and, you know, I know like this, this, this week, um, and I know this will probably be in the past by the, by the time, uh, you know, pe- people listen to it if you're, if, but I'm going, I'm going to be, I, I was invited to go to Yale, the political debate union to discuss yeah, <laughs> to discuss, uh-huh. <laughs> discuss like tearing down the wall. Um, I'll let you know how that goes. You know, okay. that's, uh, and if it's televised or, or like on YouTube, we'll add a link to it. Okay, okay, that sounds good. Okay. Yeah, thank you very much, and hopefully you can have get some sleep or rest. What time? How many hours ahead of the U.S. is Kenya? 
I think from where I am on the wet, I'm in Arizona. I think it's like 10 hours. Okay. So now, yeah, now it should be around 10 o'clock at night there too. So yeah, hopefully you'll I think get it's about the same as you. Yeah. Okay. It's 10, right? Yep. It's 1021 here. Yeah. Oh yeah. 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 So it's probably something like that. Okay. Well, thank you so much and have a great rest of the day and hope you can get some rest. Yeah. Thanks, Sasha. You have a good night's sleep. You too. Bye-bye. All right. Bye. Music for this show is done by Rectech. You can find him on SoundCloud and on Spotify. W-R-E-C-K-T-E-C-H. And thank you for listening to our show. 